text for today is Joshua chapters 3 and 4. Joshua 3 and 4. We'll just read some parts of them. I'm reading out of the Pew Bible that's right there in front of you. If you're sitting on the floor and if you're up in the balcony, it's underneath you. Uh, I'll be on page 185 if you're in the Pew Bible. We'll begin on page 185. Joshua chapter 3. Today in Joshua we see the Israelites actually, finally, after all this time, going into the land to conquer it that God has set out for them. And there's a dramatic river crossing here. And this river crossing demonstrates a point of no return. Once you cross, you can't go back. But even now, here, they take a moment to look back and remember all that God has done for them and to set for themselves future appointments to start remembering in the future all that God is doing for them right now. So we will do likewise. Let's pray together and let's read Joshua chapter 3. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray that when we hear it today, when we read it today, that we would believe it. I pray that you would open hearts to you and your word to receive it. I pray that you would use your word today to make us into the people you want us to be. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Joshua started early the next morning and left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and they stayed there before crossing after three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourself and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Then he said to the priest, Carry the Ark of the Covenant and go ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and they went ahead of them. And the Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses." Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, you will know the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan, now choose twelve men from the tribe of Israel, one from each tribe, and when the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's waters, its waters will be cut off, and the water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. This is the word of the Lord for us today. First, he says, it's time to go, and we're going to be following the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. 
The Ark of the Covenant's already been talked about and mentioned in Scripture. If what you know of the Ark of the Covenant you learned from Indiana Jones, that's all right. You're not far off. We don't really know exactly what it looks like, but there's a good idea for what it looks like. But the important part about the Ark of the Covenant is that it held the stone tablets that God Himself created, that God Himself wrote the words onto, that Moses brought down from the mountain. It's just the Ten Commandments, the representation of the whole law of God, but it was in fact the law of God. Moses brings these down from God and it is on the basis of this covenant that He would be their God and they would be His people. God made this promise. And God keeps this promise to them. And the foundation of their relationship with God is that He has made a promise to them and He's going to keep that promise. So what do you think ought to lead a people into battle? I mean, regularly it's leaders of that army who will lead the people into battle. Or perhaps the battle standards that represent the whole company that will lead them into battle. But here... It is the promise of God that is leading them. They are held together. They are kept by God's own word and His promise as it rests and as it's represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And what's more, the Israelites are to understand that it is on the foundation of this promise that God's presence is with them. The presence of God is to be above the Ark of the Covenant as they understand it, that God is with them. God is the one leading them, and His presence among them is based upon a promise that He made to Him that that He will keep. Next, you'll notice they're supposed to keep their distance from the Ark of the Covenant. A good bit of distance. And uh, this is important because you'll come to read in Scripture later on in Judges and elsewhere that, uh, and back in Numbers, you know, when people touch the Ark of the Covenant, they die. That's, that's, a, that's just a part of this, is uh, this holy God, when people treat Him in unholy ways, uh, they're brought punishment because of it. So that might be in your mind why they're supposed to keep a distance. What is a safe distance? Here it says a thousand yards. That's a little bit more than half a mile. <laughs> so they're, they're quite, a far, quite a good distance back from this. But this passage doesn't say that they're keeping their distance because of the fear of the Lord. That's something we read elsewhere. What does this passage say? This passage says in verse 4, keep your distance about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. What about the idea with how many people are following along in this column and how hard it can be to see the person who's leading when there's so, so many people all the way back? It says you're going to keep the ark way out in front so everybody knows where it is and you can see it way out in front. And that way you're not going to get distracted or lost by following some group or crowd that tends to meander away a little bit where all you can see are the heads in front of you. No, no, it's going to be far enough out in front that everyone can see it because they've not gone this way before. They've not gone into the promised land just yet. So God will lead them, and they're going to keep their distance so they can see the way to go. The next thing you'll notice here is verse 5. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourself because the Lord is going to do wonders for you tomorrow. If you're a member of the nation of Israel at this time, how does one consecrate oneself? 
You certainly ought to understand what consecrate means. It just means set yourself aside, clean yourself up, get ready. If you're any other soldier, it would be polish up your boots, get dressed, get everything in order, and get ready to go. For the Israelites, the way they consecrate themselves, the way they set themselves apart for God is by certain rituals that have been prescribed to them in the book of Moses. There's ceremonial washing that they're supposed to do. They're supposed to abstain from certain behaviors and perhaps from certain foods for the time to make themselves in a ceremonial way pure because God is about to work. That's what it says. The Lord is about to do wonders, and if you want to see Him, you've got to purify yourself. You need to consecrate yourself and set yourself aside first. Another interesting thing to talk about in this passage is the Jordan River itself. Our passage says that it is overflowing its banks in this season. Uh, This is harvest season. Uh, It's actually verse 15. If we had read two more verses, now the overflowing banks, the Jordan was overflowing its banks is what verse 15 says throughout the harvest season. So it's not just a river, but it's a flooded river. Do you know the difference between the two? Have you seen a river? And then have you seen a river at flood conditions? This is a terrifying river. This is a big, wide river, the Jordan River at this point that they're going to cross. They're going to need a miracle in order to cross it, and that's what God has in mind for them. I should point out at this moment that uh, my name is also Jordan, and uh, yeah, here it is. (laughs) Here it comes. My name is uh, also Jordan, and uh, once upon a time in days of yore, my father David Bird, while he was a seminary student, he went on a trip to Israel, and as one does sometimes, was baptized in the Jordan River. He comes back home to his pregnant wife and says, I know what we're going to name him. And, uh, and so that's, that's how that happens. My, that's a true story. That's how that happens. Uh, my older brother, Austin, is named because my dad grew up in Austin, Texas. There you go. And uh, my younger brother, Cameron, is named that because mom got to pick one, you know, <laughs> by the end. There you go. We'll let her, we'll let her pick one. Her dad comes home with these ideas. We're going to name him this. Uh, names have meaning. And the name Jordan, as it applies to the river, it just means it goes that way. I mean, literally, it just means flowing downward. It's, it's the one that goes from Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It just, it's descending. It's the one that flows that direction, or it means it's emptying. It's just it's what it means. It's a river term. It's perhaps not a great name once you think about it. Ask somebody else, oh, your name means beloved. Well, that's great, David, for having a name that means beloved. And oh, your name means God hears me. That's good, Samuel, for having a good spiritual name. Yeah, God hears me. What's your name mean? I don't, emptying out. <laughs> it means... Uh, it means flowing that direction. But I offer to you today that descending or emptying out is actually a fitting name for a Christian, especially one in the line of John the Baptist, who himself, when he saw Jesus' ministry, said, he must become greater and I must become less. So, as a brief digression for my other Jordans who are here today, I say to you, keep the name. Let us keep our name by pouring out our lives, by descending and making ourselves less, and by emptying out ourselves before Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ has poured out His life to bring us to Him, well, then let us rejoice to pour out our lives to bring others to Christ. 
For the rest of you, if you want to name a child Jordan, you're welcome to, one of these days. But we other Jordans, we charge royalties, so it's important. All right, digression over. The next thing you're going to notice in this passage is the priests, before the waters are going to be rolled back, they have to put their feet in the water. I find this to be a fascinating detail here. Before the waters will be rolled back, these flood waters that have jumped their banks and are dragging all sorts of stuff downstream, they have to walk up to it carrying the holiest relic that they have, the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of Moses, which they need to not touch the box while they're holding on to the poles that carry the box. And they have to walk up to the raging river, and what do they do? God said it's going to go, it's going to part. But before they even see it part, they've got to put their feet in the water first. You're only going to see the miracle happen if you put your feet in the water first. And when the priests come and put their feet in the water, then the water will split open. You're to remember, you're to remember here people like Rahab, we talked about just last week, who essentially commits treason and lies to her king before she even goes back and gets a promise from these spies that God will provide for her. She's all in, in essence, before she ever receives a promise. Likewise, before they see the work of the Lord, they're to believe the work of the Lord based upon what they've seen before, and the ones who do will see God's work. Step one is you hear the word of the Lord. He commands them. Step one, God commands them to do something. They hear the word of the Lord. So step one, you hear the word of the Lord, and then step two is you live by faith in that word. Step three, you see the miracles. The Jordan splits open just like the Red Sea did. The Red Sea, I guess, splits because it's a sea, so there's walls of water on both sides. The Jordan River just stops for a second, so it dries up all the way down to the Sea of Galilee from there, and everybody sees it, and they walk by on dry ground, not muddy ground, but dry ground. What happens in the passage next, we're going to pick up again reading in uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 19. So at the end of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 19, I'm going to read a little bit more to you. In the meantime, so what happens there in the rest of chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, is it all happens just like God said. The priests, they carry the Ark of the Covenant out into the middle of the river. It dries up completely. While they're there and they're walking through, Joshua actually builds a stone monument of 12 stones right where they're carrying it. So you understand the priests, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they stop midstream and everybody walks by. Every last person walks by and see that it's God who's holding this water back for them. They all see that. And, and dead in the middle of the river, uh, verse, oh, which verse says this? This is an interesting deal. Verse 9, Joshua stops and he sets up stones himself. He does a stone memorial there in the middle of the river. But he also commands them as they've already made it across, that one from each tribe is to go back and grab the biggest stone they can, they can carry and to bring it up out of the water in order to make a memorial there on the side of the water. So why? What's this memorial about? Let's read chapter 4, verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal in the east, uh, eastern limits of Jericho. Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan, and he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What are the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. These stones are not an altar, you are to understand, and a fine distinction, not an altar, but a memorial. When the prophet Elijah is going out against the prophets of Baal, he builds an altar, something you sacrifice things on is what an altar is. This isn't an altar because nothing's being sacrificed on it. It's simply a memorial. It, it, not unlike this, though the rocks may be larger, but a, a monument of sorts so that everybody who walks by has to ask the question, why is that there? And they will answer. It's because God dried up a river for us one time, and He is the one who brought us in. Why? What are they remembering? What happened? that God was gracious to them. And you'll understand here that this is for children. He says first, this is so when your children ask fathers, they can talk about the meaning of the stones. But it's not just for children. Who else is it for? Verse 24, this is so that all people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, so that you may always fear the Lord your God. What is remembered? <laughs> that the Lord is mighty and that you should fear the Lord and not fear other people. When it comes to who are you going to obey, feel the, fear the Lord and not others. Understand that the primary way that God has provided for people to know about Him is others telling about what He has done. See, the memorial stones themselves that they set up, they don't, they don't tell a story. Somebody could walk by that, see the pile of rocks, assume something happened there, but not know what it means. So, the, the memorial stones are simply a trigger of memory. It's to beg the question or bring up a question, rather. Why are those rocks there? What happened? What did you do? What actually conveys things is the words of God's people, talking about what God has done and telling other people about Him. See, the rocks don't declare that Jesus Christ is mighty. The rocks don't declare that God's hand is mighty and that you should fear the Lord. The fathers of the children are the ones who declare, the Lord's hand is mighty, and He did these mighty things. The rocks don't cry out. They're simply a reminder to trigger the memory of these people so that they will talk again and again. This God who did this thing here is the same God who has created everything and has a purpose for your life as well, who brought you into the world at just the right time, and has brought about you being here today. This God has orchestrated all kinds of things because of how great the love of the Lord is for you. What we have to do is believe it and remember it, but in order to believe it, the only way God has set for us to know anything is by His words. It's by somebody proclaiming, God did this for me, and He will do this for you as well. The Israelites after this will cross into the promised land, and they're going to take the promised land. Next Sunday, we'll begin talking about the battle of Jericho, the first one, and that magnificent one that God gives to them. But for today, let's stop here in Scripture and just talk about what this means. What are we to do? 
given who this God is, how He speaks, and how He has called us to remember? Well, first of all, let us keep careful watch of the Lord so that we know the way that we're supposed to go in life. Let's take for an application how the Israelites were to stand a thousand yards back, more than half a mile back from the Ark of the Covenant, not out of fear of it, though that's real, but so that they could see the way that they were going to go, so they could keep real clear in front of their mind where they were supposed to be. You know, for a, a good illustration from motorcycling, which will be a bad illustration for most of you who don't care for, for this sort of thing, but there's a phenomenon that happens where you go where you're looking, and they'll say this all the time. If you're, if you're out in the mountains and you're going around in some curvy spots, you're going to go where you're looking, so don't look off the road into the curvy spot, uh, because that's where you're going to go. If there's an obstacle in the road or a rock, you know what you don't want to do is stare at the rock, because that's where you're going to go, and you're going to go straight into it. And you can watch all kinds of videos out there of people who get target fixation, and they go exactly where they're looking at, because they're scared of something, and they're staring at it, and they go right into it. And it happens again and again. Where you focus yourself is important. We likewise must focus on Christ, perhaps a better illustration for you. If you're trying to cut straight lines in a field, perhaps you ought to focus on something off in the horizon that you can point to and not get off track. Or perhaps most directly for us, I have sometimes been surprised when going through a Bible study with long-time Christians, there's just certain things that they don't know about Scripture. I'm never upset. You know, God bless you. You know as much as you know, and we all want to grow and learn more, but sometimes I, I have an assumption. I'm like, oh, you probably know everything. You've been reading this Bible longer than I've been alive. And then I'm surprised at some of the things that just were missing in there. And it seems to be, because this happens to all of us, the case that sometimes things just distract our view from reading and knowing God's Word. If God is steering us, not by Ark of the Covenant, but if God is steering us by His Word, then it's entirely possible that a bunch of other instructions and directions and self-help and advice start to clear up our view and clear up our life, and the answers to our questions when we have a question becomes something unusual that was advice we heard out there in the world, something clinical or something medical. But the first thing that ought to be steering our life is the very Word of God, the answer, the application, is not to keep it far away from you, but rather to keep anything else from cluttering it up so that you can read this. What clutters your time? What takes you away from reading Scripture and knowing God's Word and keeping it fixed before you? Let us, like the Israelites, remove all obstacles out of our way so that we can keep God's leadership since He leads us by His Word let us keep His Word fixed right in front of us and let us not be distracted by all the things that can come up and steer us and distract us otherwise. Second, if we're going to take something from this passage, let us take this, that you need to consecrate yourself for the Lord's work. Consecration for them meant washing. There were ceremonial washings. Consecration for them meant abstaining from certain behaviors. Consecration for them meant purification rituals and things that you didn't eat and things that you did in order to purify yourself. It was highly ritualistic, but it was to make them think about being a pure people. Now I ask you, since we are not under the law of Moses and we don't have highly ritualized consecration ceremonies, how does one 
set yourself aside for the service of the Lord? What do you need to do to consecrate yourself? What do you do to prepare yourself for obedience to God and a life serving Him? There's only one thing, and that is to remove all of the sin in your life from your life. If you will consecrate yourself and follow after God today, then you must repent, is what we say, to turn away from sin. It will not do for you to call yourself consecrated, but still maintain certain sins in your life. It, it doesn't make one set aside if you repent of the sins that are visible, but keep the ones that you feel you can keep secret. There's only one thing that God has called us to do to prepare ourselves in following after Him, and that is repent. After all, when Jesus came and preached the gospel to all people, the message as it's summarized in the gospel is this, repent and believe. When Peter says it in the book of Acts, when they all ask, when he preaches the Pentecost sermon, and they ask what they need to do, he says, repent and be baptized. Consecrate yourself for us is not a ceremonial cleansing, but an actual removal of sin from our life. To say, I will be done with this one. I will be done with that one. I will be done with all of these. When you start to look at your life and the old way in which you lived, it looks like, you know what I'm going to have to do? is just go ahead and have a fresh start altogether. I can't remove pieces of it. The whole thing is stained by sin. And this is true. This is why we talk about being risen into a new life. This is why we talk about being born again. It begins with us saying, I believe these things and I will turn away from the old life. We do have a consecration ceremony but we don't want to lose track of the fact that it is repentance alone, faith and repentance that save us and that bring us right before God. Still, we Baptists represent this in baptism. When you have believed and when you have made a decision to repent, then you're baptized. It's just water. It's not special water. This ceremony and going through it doesn't make you more clean than it did before, uh, before you were baptized or before God. Rather, it's simply a witness, a memorial, if you will, that we believe Jesus died and He rose again. That we believe that Jesus' death was good enough to wash us clean of all our sins. And perhaps most pertinent for our discussion today that we are making a decision to consecrate ourselves. The old life we used to live, we say in baptism, I'm going to bury that old person wholly and completely, and I'm going to get up and live a new life now following Christ. The baptism doesn't make you pure. The faith does. The baptism simply bears witness to what you have done and the decision you've made to consecrate yourself by removing sin from your life so that you can follow God consecrate yourself before Him. Though I will say it is important, I think an important moment here, that if you're going to follow after God, you need to get your feet wet. And the rest of you. <laughs> we, can, we can baptize you any Sunday that you like, we Baptists here. Consecrate yourself by removing sin from your life and repenting of it, just like God has for Israel in this passage God has great plans and purposes for you as well, but your life in following Him will begin 
with this sort of consecration, to turn away from your old life and sins so that now you can follow him rightly. Next, finally, so keep a careful watch on the Word of God so that you will know the way in life. Second, consecrate yourself by repenting of sin. And third, you need to set up memorials for all that God has done in the past. God, in fact, leads His people into the promised land. And the thing that is important here is that they set up a rock monument, something that will spur them to talk about what God has done, something that will spur their memories. Memories are not great all the time. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. Mine is garbage. Uh, But it's helped out a little bit if you write something down, and it's helped out a little bit if you create a monument that prompts you to remember to speak about all that God has done. We should likewise prompt ourselves regularly to remember and to talk about all that God has done. We, We need visual reminders of the thing that He's done in life so we can speak up and say, this is what the Lord has done for me. You might remember, uh, oh gosh, last Sunday, two Sundays ago, here's the memory problem. How long ago was this? Perhaps you remember the sermon better than I do. We talked about the uh, Henry V, the St. Crispin's Day speech, where he says, everybody who outlives this day will stand a tiptoe when this day is named, and he will on this yearly vigil invite his neighbor to feast, and he'll shed his sleeve, and he'll show his scars, and say, these wounds I bore upon St. Crispin Day. Perhaps an annual feast where you stand up and say, the Lord Jesus saved me. Perhaps the memorial stones for you in your life will be the annual feast on the anniversary of your baptism or when you were saved to invite some friends together. You know what feast means for me. It just means going to the taco truck together to eat a few tacos. But to gather a few people together and say, look at what the Lord has done. The thing that you do doesn't matter as much as the speaking about what God has done. To be able to say, all those years ago, the Lord brought me to salvation. I heard and I believed and I repented and I was baptized. And to be able to talk with people around you, your children, your neighbors, your friends, to be able to say, the Lord did these things. What other memorials do we have? What sort of objects and memorials do we set up in memory of the work that God has done? You know, I, not a wedding goes by that I officiate that I don't point to the wedding ring as a bit of a memorial, an Ebenezer, a testimony of the work, the miracle that God did, that everybody who sees it knows now. You don't even have to ask on this one, but everybody who sees it knows that God joined two people together and that God was gracious to me. On that day and on many other days, but especially for that one, God was gracious to me, and God worked a miracle of joining two people together. Thanks be to God. Visual reminders like this will help us. This is why we get together, and you should get together, and eat and feast at Christmas and at Easter. But don't let the food be the main attraction, and don't let the meal and the feast go by without standing up and saying, the Lord has saved us, without standing up and saying, God didn't leave us alone, but He came down and took on flesh Himself. Merry Christmas, everyone. The Lord is with us. Don't let an Easter go by without making a breakfast or a brunch in which you do not stand up in front of your family and say, here now all of you know that the tomb was empty, 
and that Jesus Christ is risen forevermore. And let your feasts become a memorial service before the Lord when you can share with other people all that God has done and commemorate those things with great joy and great reward, or with great rejoicing. We must, each of us, set up memorials before God. How can you create for yourself a rock, a token, a feast, a calendar reminder? something to spur your memory to speak to other people about what the Lord has done in your life. This is what we Christians do. We remember the Lord. You know, we have one more memorial. What other memorial do we participate in? We Christians take the Lord's Supper. We Baptists understand this to be a memorial, not a fresh sacrifice. Christ was sacrificed once and for all, For all of our sins, it's already done, even before you were born. When we take the Lord's Supper, just like baptism, it doesn't give you any new grace before God. If you miss the Lord's Supper, you're not losing out on salvation. We are saved by our faith and consecrated by our repentance. But we do take the Lord's Supper to remember. And as Paul says in Corinthians, we take the Lord's Supper to proclaim that the Lord's death and resurrection happened until He returns again. The Lord's Supper is given to us by Christ as a memorial, and so we take it as such. I do want to prepare you. Uh, We will take the Lord's Supper again in two weeks on April 2nd. Uh, We get to take the Lord's Supper. We just did a few weeks ago. We will again on April 2nd. If you're a guest and you're not sure how frequently does this church take the Lord's Supper, at an odd schedule. There's not a fixed schedule for it, but we take it regularly, I assure you. However, because some people are regularly surprised by this, for years have been surprised, uh, we Baptists, this Baptist church, though not all Baptist churches, which is why you might be surprised, uh, insists that everyone's welcome to take. You don't have to be a member of Talatha Baptist Church, but you do have to have received believer's baptism before you take with us. We ask that. You're welcome to come. We want everyone to take, but we see a certain chronology here where you hear the Word of God and you believe it. So you consecrate yourself by repenting. And then you go put your feet in the river. Go get baptized. Don't let anything delay you. And then come and see all the miracles that the Lord does. Truly, baptism doesn't bring about a greater salvation. For you friends who are here today who are guests among us who have not been baptized but you have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, do not doubt that salvation. You are saved by the grace of God alone, and you receive that grace through faith alone in Him. But to everyone who's called to God, you must follow in obedience to Him. He has called you to obey Him with life in your life, has He not? We have a certain understanding of how to obey Him in baptism here, and we would love for any of you to be baptized. So in conclusion, in two weeks, we will be taking the Lord's Supper, and I really want all of you to participate with us. So we've got next Sunday to baptize you. Who's in? I'm serious. I already have two adults who are going to be baptized next Sunday. Anybody else can be. The water will be there and it will be warm. If this is something, it's funny, but I'm still so serious. There's already people on the schedule to be baptized. We can baptize as many as we need to. If you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't let anything delay you any longer. Come and be baptized. You won't even be the only one. The focus won't be on you. But it will be on a public profession that you say, I believe Jesus died and rose again. 
I believe He has washed me clean of all of my sins. And I have already made a commitment to leave my old life behind and bury that guy and now go live a new life in Jesus Christ. And I believe that Jesus will return someday and the dead in Christ will rise. Come and prepare yourself. Come and make preparations for this Lord's Supper. In two weeks on April 2nd, the whole sermon will be about the Lord's Supper. We'll take a break from Joshua so I can explain to you what it means. We at least annually have to have an explanation of what it means to take the Lord's Supper with Baptists and with these Baptists, because we're not like all the rest of them either. There's kinds of Baptists, just like there's other denominations. But we'll have a whole sermon and a whole service to prepare ourselves for the taking, and I would love for you to take it. If you're not persuaded about our style of baptism, God bless you, brothers and sisters. You are more than welcome to continue worshiping with us here at this church, and I don't want you to go anywhere else. I do want you to come and be baptized and be a member here, but you're welcome to stay and worship the Lord with you. What's most important to me is that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What's most important to us is that you have received the grace and forgiveness of God by believing and turning your life over to him. If you have not done that, then you don't have to wait till next Sunday. You can do that now. Come, it is time to put your trust in Christ. We're going to sing a song and we're going to worship the Lord. And you who need to come forward today, you can. If you need to come forward and just spend some time kneeling here at these kneelers, you can spend some time. Make whatever commitments you need to the Lord. No one will bother you. Just come and kneel and pray and stay as long as you like, and then you can go back and be seated. If you need someone to pray for you today, I would love to pray for you. Just come here and let me say a prayer for you. We're not going to have to introduce you. You can go back and be seated, but I would be happy to pray for you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then come forward today and make it public. You don't have to have the right words to say. None of us had the right words to say when we made this commitment. Simply come forward today and say, Jesus is Lord, and we're going to rejoice with you. If you need to be baptized, come forward today and let us know, and we'll let you be baptized next Sunday or any Sunday that works for you. You don't even have to come forward to be baptized unless your parents have told you you did, then you do need to. And just give me a call this week. Send me a text message. Find me after the worship service and let me know that you'd like to be baptized, and we will set it up and put it on the calendar. If you need to come and be a member of this church, you can come so the congregation can vote on you. But for whatever reason, now's your chance. Let's stand up. Let's worship Christ. And you who need to come forward, come forward.